This podcast is brought to you by Doro Phones. Hello, Mike Murphy here on behalf of Senior Times. And for the next half hour or so, I'd like you to meet Joe O'Donnell. Joe has been a friend of mine for many years. He's 87 years old. He's a playwright, poet, magician and TV producer, including Glen Rowe, by the way. He has lived through the bombings of World War II, has travelled the countries in the 50s as a member of a fit-up company, has worked with Anu McMaster. He became one of RTE's first producer-directors, then eventually head of Young People's Programming, where he created Wanderly Wagon, among other things. He practices Tai Chi and writes essays, and he's going to read a few of those essays for us today. Joe, it's great to see you. Hello, Mike. Yes, yeah, it's great to be forward. here. I'm yes. looking forward to hearing what you're going to present to us because okay. I know such a variety, a variety of, of careers you've had in your long, meaningful life. Um, it, it's very interesting. But the big, I suppose the stage, going through what I just did there, the stage was a common factor for you. And I wasn't acting. And I, I know, remember you telling me years ago, your big hero going way back when was Orson Welles. Oh, totally, yes, yes. Right from the very beginning, I think Orson Welles was my hero. And still is, I have to say, still is. Um, I, I wrote this piece, actually, it's titled Beware of Heroes. And it sort of puts it in context. In a lifetime we acquire, for better or for worse, a pantheon of heroes, people we look up to, aspire to be like, templates to behaviour which we lay down deep in our psyche. I foresaw Orson Welles as Harry Lyme in The Third Man. Who could forget the scene on the huge Ferris wheel when Orson, as the gangster Harry Lyme, contemplates good and evil? You know what the fellow said? In Italy for 30 years, under the Borgias, they had warfare, terror, murder and bloodshed, and they produced Michelangelo, Leonardo da Vinci and the Renaissance. In Switzerland, they had brotherly love, 500 years of democracy and peace. And what did that produce? The cuckoo clock. At that time, I was plying my craft as a magician. Imagine my delight when I discovered that Wells, too, was a skilled illusionist of professional standards. This, at least, we had in common. What I did not share, alas, was the bass baritone voice, a voice that seemed to have been matured in oaken casks for years. Nor did I have the height. Oh, I affected a long black coat and a Homburg hat, but however impressive they looked on the tall and well-built Wells, they must have looked a little ridiculous on a chubby Irishman of five foot seven or thereabouts. This particular Christmas, I was cast as Abanazar, the wicked wizard in the pantomime Aladdin. This was considered a suitable vehicle for my magical skills and not too demanding on what acting talent I had. I had seen pictures of Wells in a recent London production of Othello. Wells played the moor wearing 18-inch shoe lifts which raised his height to a towering seven foot plus. The very thing for Abanazar, I thought. My day job at the time was with a firm of builders' providers and the lads in the joinery shop agreed to make me the necessary risers. My entrance would be spectacular. Posing in front of the dressing room mirror, I looked majestically evil, just like my hero Orson. 
Indeed, I could almost hear that fruity chuckle as he wished me well in the customary theatrical manner, break a leg, old man, break a leg, which is what I nearly did when I tried to get to the stage. I lost my balance, toppled down the steps onto the stage, then plunged headlong into the footlights. The startled pit band ducked for cover. I landed on my knees and, hauling myself upright, laid my hand on one of the footlights. I shot up and literally staggered through the rest of the scene. Oh, the pity of it, Iago. Luckily, this was the dress rehearsal, and the wooden risers were swiftly discarded in the interests of health and safety, mine and the rest of the cast, and a chastened, not to say sadly diminished, Abenazer played out the run of the pantomime. Heroes are meant to make us reach for the stars, not grovel in ignominy before the world. Be wary. Be very wary of whom you admit to your roll call of heroes. I guarantee you that some of the cast were saying, we should leave it in. It's brilliant when he falls into the orchestra pit. <laughs> I guarantee you there were those among them. I'd have been one to say, oh God, that was brilliant, Joe. Will you do it on the first night? <laughs> Absolutely, yes, yes, yes. Joe, these these essays that you've written, um, you, you've written them as... Is it a precursor to a memoir? It, it is exactly that, Mike. It's, it, they, are, they are thoughts I was putting down at, uh, almost out of sequence whenever they came to me. Um, I have decided, I had decided long ago, to write a memoir. And the, uh, the, the title of this work in progress is Searching the Hat for Rabbits. And how that title came about was um, when my two boys were growing up, they used to have birthday parties and their friends would come along and I'd do a little magic show for them and the props were all held in an old brown suitcase. And one day, I think it was after one of Michael's parties, probably his eighth party, he was eight year old, I went out and he was looking through it and he had a top hat in his hand, one of those opera spring hats that spring out. And he was looking at it and he was doing this again and again and I said to him, Michael, what are you doing? And he said, I'm searching the hat for rabbits, Dad. And I sort of glanced <laughs> back and said to myself, oh, yeah. rarely do the powers that be hand you such a title. Yeah. This could be the title of anything. That's pretty good. That's pretty so, good. So I, I put it aside and, well, that's more or less has been my guidance since yeah. then. Yeah. We're, we'll talk about your magicianing days uh, later on. Uh, but just at the moment, I'm very interested, Joe, in the whole theatrical thing and particularly in the fit-ups and the theatre, you know. And you did that. You travelled the country in the, in the fit-ups, didn't oh, yes, you? yes. And yeah. I mean, in all honesty, you know, you and I are of a certain vintage now. So I, I never saw that the fit-ups, mm-hmm. you were part of it, uh-huh, but yeah. will you just explain to people what the fit-ups were and how one went about? The fit-ups were travelling theatre companies, um, mostly family-based, and they brought in people from, well, like me, from outside as well, and um, they travelled not on stages only, only in the in the winter did we use uh, stages in, in town halls or wherever we happened to be. Or normally it was, we travelled with a booth now, which was like... Uh, a booth? A booth, yeah. yeah. A large canvas booth with two, rather like circus tents, only elongated if you like, and it made, it, uh, made a, 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 a theatre with seats and with uh, a stage and with uh, lots of backdrops which were beautifully painted and these were for the different plays. We did, the show for the night would consist of uh, a play, 
a variety show and a a laughable sketch, as it was called, to finish off the night. Um, now, you were supposed to do all of those, and uh, the plays could be changed night to night. They had a repertoire, the ones I was with, but Costello's Bohemian players, had a repertoire of maybe up to 20 or 30 plays that they could produce on the go. And I had come from Dublin, and I had been trained in the Brendan Smith Academy, and we had uh, six or seven weeks to rehearse a play, and we learned a script from a text. But when I arrived there, I found that the, the rehearsal for the morning consisted of, oh, yes, and this is about the black and tans, and you're a black and tan, and you come in, and you have a short scene with Moira here, and she does this, and she does that. And that was it. In other words, you had to improvise each of these as long as you followed the... Uh, the, the, the General the, 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 plot. General plot, exactly. You had plot points to make throughout this. And it wasn't until much afterwards I was explaining this to somebody and they said, but don't you know, that's the way the Commedia dell'arte worked. You were working in a very fine tradition. Think you're not smart enough to own a smartphone? Well, think again and think Doro. Doro phones are designed specially with the older person in mind. They're easy to use with louder sound and larger text plus numerous state-of-the-art features that don't compromise on performance or quality. To learn more about the full range of high-tech Doro phones, visit www.doro.com. Doro phones. Make friends with innovation. If you're enjoying this podcast, why not subscribe to Senior Times, the magazine and website for people who don't act their age. Or maybe you have a loved one or a friend who you know would love to read more. You can buy a subscription and have the magazine delivered direct to their door. To subscribe to Senior Times, visit the website at seniortimes.ie and like us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash senior times. I had a very slick 20-25 minute cabaret uh, magic act that I did in Dublin. I I knew it backwards. When I arrived there, I found that they played seven nights in each place and I was required to have a different act for each night. (laughs) And also possibly one for uh, the the children's show they did on the Saturday if the the town land was big enough. And this, now luckily I had brought with me a whole stack of uh, magic books and magic magazines. So my morning was spent not only trying to uh, make up the play, but also put together an act for the night. And by the end of the week, I had seven decent acts that I could do, uh, including some other time we'll talk about this. Uh, I was trying hypnotism for the first time and it scared the bejapers (laughs) out of me when in fact it actually worked. And I was really... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I didn't. I thought I was going to make a comedy act of it. It didn't work. So anyway, but anyway, they, they had, and we we travel from place to place, and and would, I presume just briefly now, presume you you had people going ahead of you to say the company is arriving tomorrow. They'd be putting up advertising posters, um, and and then you'd be selling raffle tickets as part of it. Absolutely. And and where would you stay? Would you be staying we, in guest houses? We would stay. Well, no. Uh, they they, they travelled. The, the the core, and it was usually a couple of families. Uh, they travelled in their own what they called wagons. They, 
they, which were, were caravans, like, you know, and uh, motorized caravans, and they were very luxury, some of them. And you, I was offered a wagon. It, the, the, the phrase was, you get a wagon and your chances. Uh, <laughs> and that, but I didn't, I, because at that stage, I, I wasn't able to cook or anything like that. So it did... There would be lists of in every town, even the small towns, because at that stage, at any given time that we'd be in one place, within, say, a five-mile radius, there could be four other fit-up companies. There was a huge amount of fit-up companies. The Carrickfords, uh, Vic Loving, all all of those, the the, the dandies and others, some good, some bad, some quite indifferent. um, But you arrived at one of these digs on the morning of that thing, and once you had the fit-up put up, um, you you went around and you looked at them and they always had guest books and the guest books had uh, things like them, absolutely marvellous, really great, lovely food, great people. But you looked down this, you were looking for a phrase and the phrase after one of these would be, quote the raven. Yeah. And once you saw quote the raven, you made your excuses and vanished. Quote the raven comes from the Edgar Allan Poe poem and it's a, it's a Once Upon a Midnight Drear and it's, it's a scary poem because the recurring line at the end of each verse, quote the raven nevermore. So you saw this code phrase. At you the did end. a runner. You knew and you did a runner. You did a runner. I you love did it. A runner. Um, can you talk about Anya McMaster? You worked with Anya McMaster and he was basically the king of drama or travelling theatre, wasn't he? Absolutely, in that time? yes, yeah. Yeah, I mean, Mac, Mac, as he was called, Mac was, was, uh, was a power of, of, unto himself. He had been uh, a leading actor, a Shakespearean actor in uh, Stratford. He had toured uh, Australia as a lead with a Shakespearean company. He had been all over the world, but he loved, for some reason, he loved being in Ireland and travelling the small little places, the smaller, the better. We were, for instance, in a hospital. We arrived in a hospital and it was just a, a hall, a small hall. We had to go and get barrels and we had to go and get planks and literally make... A stage. a stage. So you had four planks and a, and a, and a, and barrels. That was the stage. And uh, I do remember I was I was. We all had different jobs, you know. So I was looking after the lights at the time. And whatever way I plugged in the ESB, I I shorted the entire town. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so I wasn't terribly popular. But you did this, and we had we carried a repertoire of about. Uh, three, I think, Shakespearean plays. And then the others were called Max Night Off. They were usually West End farces and that. And uh, the, the, the company was very good and, and uh, a very um, highly professional company. They, 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 they were really good. And there was no, ver- no, no variety. There was no thing. We just did the play. And you're going to do a piece for us now which relates really to that time, doesn't it? What What is this and what, what's Absolutely. the reference? This, this is quite true. I mean, all, all the things in this are quite true. Uh, and um, it, 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 I, I wrote it just to put it down because I couldn't believe it when it happened. The tour with the legendary actor-manager, Anya McMaster, had finished for the season. I returned to my flat in Sandy Mount to catch up with friends, housekeeping and the pursuit of further employment. There was a record library in Ann Street which offered LPs at a peppercorn rent and this was my first court of call. I returned with an armful of musicals, traditional music and a few Beethoven symphonies for balance. 
I smoked a pipe in those days and a few good discs on the turntable, a bottle of Faustino Cinco from Finlaters and my pipe pulling aromatically on the special banker's mixture from Fox's and a heaven was instantly accessible. I was, you will gather, a young fogey in those days. I am definitely an older one nowadays. All went well until I began feeling strange. My heartbeat increased noticeably. My breathing became sporadic. My hands shook. This was something new. Was this a heart attack? My flatmate was in Radio Air and recording a play. Should I dial 999? I threw myself on the daybed and took some deep breaths. In a matter of minutes, I had calmed down and I tentatively finished listening to Beethoven, the Sixth Symphony, the pastoral, gentle, flowing, full of the echoes of the forest, birdsong, raindrops, brooks which babbled melodically. Nothing there to cause any anxiety, one would have thought. That was when it happened again. Same symptoms, heartbeat acceleration, hands trembling, breath coming in tiny explosive gasps. I stumbled to the daybed and threw myself on it. A random thought. Could it be connected with the music? It didn't take long to piece it together. McMaster was very particular about the music he chose to accompany the plays we were performing. Jane Eyre had Ravel's heartbreaking Pavan for a Dead Infanta as the perfect accompaniment to this bleak melodrama. The Scottish play spun out its bloody entanglements to the austere harshness of Vaughan Williams' Sinfonia Antarctica. And, wait a minute now, wait a little minute, yes, Shakespeare's rustic comedy As You Like It used portions of Beethoven's pastoral symphony to link the scenes. But why should music as tranquil as this cause such palpitation? The answer lay in the parts I was playing. The snag was that when the music started, as the curtain dropped, I had less than ten minutes to leg it back to the dressing room for a total costume and makeup change, as the curtain was subsequently due to rise in the Forest of Arden on a particular bar of music. So I was conscious all the time of the pressure, and it was all linked to the music. I usually slid into position on an upturned log in the Forest of Arden as the curtain rose and the sudden change of gear from the hectic race to the opening lines of the act. Now, my co-mates and brothers in exile, hath not old life must have had an appalling effect on the system. I was rather pleased with my self-analysis, but even now, more than 60 years later, the same words calm the soul, while the same music paradoxically quickens the pulse. And this, our life, Exempt from public haunt, finds tongues in trees, books in the running brooks, sermons in stones, and good in everything. Joe, it rings bells for me, that that thing about the music. I remember being in a play in the Ablana Theatre many, many, many moons ago, long before I became a broadcaster, and it was a play called My Wife's Family, and I remember Danny Cummins was playing the lead in it. Yes, yes. And I remember that... all I, every time I hear the music of Leroy Anderson, 
I, I am swept back to the Ablana Theatre and my wife's family. It's amazing, it's the association, isn't it? It's extraordinary, yes. It is, yes. it is amazing, yes. you know. Yes. It yeah. brings me right back to the Ablana Theatre under Bosaurus. Amazing. Absolutely, Joe, yes. which reminds me, that part of the city, indeed. You, uh, you did a piece, you have a piece, which I really would like you to do for us. And it goes way, way back to 1941. Mm, yes, and it yes. goes to an area very close to where the Ablana Theatre right, eventually yes, yes, became yes, situated. Yeah. And it's about the bombings of the North Strand during World War II. Absolutely, yes. I hadn't a clue what an atheist was. For a long time, I had known that Mr. Nagel was an atheist. Adults whispered it with a resigned nod of the head. My mother pursed her lips when she said it, wiping out in one savage look the man's otherwise exemplary character. So when the Germans bombed Dublin in May 1941, my mother attributed it directly to the presence of an atheist in the home. I knew we wouldn't have an hour's luck, she said. When the air raid sirens began their wavering wail, my father, an NCO in the local defence force, that was Ireland's own dad's army, ushered all families to the basement. We had been familiar with the siren from the occasional, though well-signalled, air raid drill sequences. We knew the drill from school. You went to the lowest part of the house and lay down with your head between your knees, a safe if uncomfortable position. There we all were in the basement, all three families listening to the rumble of the approaching planes. The house was in Fairview and not very far from the major bomb strike in the North Strand. She's heading this way, said my father. That was when the second bomb fell. This time the whistle and bang were closer. My mother scrambled to her feet, clutching the large lemonade bottle of Lourdes water my Aunt Eileen had brought back from the pilgrimage. Hefting the bottle in her hand, my mother started to scatter all and sundry with the blessed water. Sacred heart of Jesus, protect and defend us all. Sacred heart of Jesus, protect and defend us all. Oh, little flower, show us your power. The droning of the aircraft got louder and my mother had to raise her voice above the noise. Sacred heart of Jesus, protect and defend us all. Nagel turned a frightened face towards her. Mrs., he said in a tight, cracked voice. Mrs., don't come near me with that stuff. Do you hear me now? My mother, much as she disapproved of his beliefs, or lack of them, was prepared to give the devil his due in the presence of incipient death. Oh, don't worry, Mr. Nagel. I think it's more than a drop of holy water you need now, she said, and continued with her benedictions. Her aim was accurate, as like a knife-thrower in a circus, she showered either side of the frozen, horror-struck Nagel without once wetting him. It was at that precise moment that the Luftwaffe decided to ditch their last bomb. The whistle of this bomb was much louder than any of the previous ones, and the bang, when it came, seconds later, was much bigger and nearer than the others. It shook the house. A window shattered somewhere above me, Dust showered down on us. My mother shrieked, Jesus, Mary and Joseph, and leaped backwards in fright. She fell over the prone body of my father and the bottle of Lourdes water described an arc through the dust-filled air to shatter above the head of Nagel. 
With a shout, he leaped to his feet as though it had been boiling water. I'm wet, missus. You've soaked me with that stuff. We all looked at him in horror as he took off up the stairs. He didn't know what was happening outside. He didn't care. But whatever it was, it was safer than the prospect of a further drenching with Lourdes water inside. Mr Nagel never did forgive my mother for what happened the night of the bombing. The German government made reparation to the tune of £327,000 as a gesture when the war was over. My mother had no regrets. Nothing will convince me, she insisted. But that was the devil you saw rushing out. Just as Jesus sent the possessed pigs running into the sea, that's what Aunt Eileen's holy water did to him. Mark my words, it wouldn't surprise me if we were to see a change of heart in the same Mr Nagel. Mr Nagel remained resolutely divorced from Mother Church and died 16 years later unrepentant, drowning off Curly's Hole, a notoriously dangerous bathing spot in Dollymount. As my mother, God rest her, would have said, God is not mocked. Very funny. <laughs> Poor old Mr Nagel. I can see it. I mean, it's actually a great visual sketch, isn't it? <laughs> Don't come near me with that stuff, Mrs. Nagel, and by the way, Nagel is not his name for oh, obvious reasons. No, no, you're protecting the innocent. <laughs> um, uh, he, 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 was a, he, was, he was another of my heroes because I was only seven years old and he would come out, he would be dressed in this one of these sort of Chinese or uh, Japanese dressing gowns and he smoked cigarettes from a long hole and on a Friday there was a, a fiddler came around and uh, he was playing various tunes up and down and people would give him a couple of pence and he would come and I would sit down at the, down on the steps, Nagel on top of the uh, flight of steps down to the street and the fiddler would say, yes, Mr Nagel, and, and Nagel would say, um, <laughs> uh, play uh, Mozart's minuet, my man. And he would play da da dee da 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 And uh, then Nagel would give him a couple of say, there's some money for a fish supper to treat yourself, my man, thank you. And he would go off. And I thought this was marvellous. So much later, I was looking for the tune, man. I, I, I was up in his shop in, in, uh, along the Keys, which sold secondhands. I was looking, the guy said to me, can I help you? And I said, I'm looking for Mozart's minuet. And he said, which of them? And I said, she said there, there, are loads, there are quite a few Mozart minuets. And um, uh, I said, uh, he said, can you, can you hum it? And I went, da, da, dee, da, da. And he said, no, he said, that's not Mozart minuet. That's Boccherini's minuet. So there you are, again, heroes. Placing <laughs> your trust in heroes is a dangerous thing. Absolutely. Joe, it's been a pleasure having you on this podcast. And I'd... I know you've got some other pieces about your yearning to be a magician, that yes. this was what I really want to be when I grow up. Yes. Um, and I'd love you to do them. But would you come back and maybe we'll do a follow-up podcast to this one? I'll be delighted to, Mike. Good. OK, well, that's Joe O'Donnell. And I am delighted to have introduced Joe to a number of our listeners on these podcasts. So I look forward to doing the next one with you, Joe. And in the meantime, this is Mike Murphy on behalf of Senior Times saying goodbye. Thank you.